You are listening to the Smaller Your Hunting podcast, the podcast dedicated to just anything and everything that is the white-tailed deer. You know me, I'm Ty Miller, your host, founder, and the voice of smallacrehunting.com. You are the ones that made this turn from a blog to a website to a YouTube channel to everything that it is. So hopefully you find this new venture, this new consistent delivery of information via the podcast useful. But less chatting on the intro, more chatting on the topic. Let's get this episode started. Let's talk whitetails. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Smaller Grinding Podcast. I am your host, Ty Miller, and I just want to thank you for tuning in for this part three of, I don't even know how many parts this is going to turn into, but this is the series that I'm doing on the podcast of making a habitat plan. This is part three. So in part one, we discuss kind of what are your goals and looking at the macro approach to the property, zooming out and looking at the general area and making notes, getting to know the entirety of the area. It's a very pivotal step that I think a lot of people overlook and they worry only about the property specific. In part two, we touched on basically the most pivotal thing above all else that you need to do you need to do in order to provide to the deer the number one thing that you need to provide, and that's security. If you are not doing that through your hunting, through your habitat, and through your hygiene, as I talk about the three H's of security, it can override anything that we are going to discuss and do and implement on the property. It will slash your chances. Um, not saying it eliminates them, but it plays a giant factor in your success. On this episode, though, we are going to start talking about a hypothetical property, and I'm going to kind of walk you through some of the things. And this property that we're going to create, if you will, is going to be very similar to a, a lot of properties that I walk on. Yes, every property is different. Every property has different types of species of trees and layouts and property types and stuff. But this property is going to have attributes of a lot of places that I have consults on. I have friends who ask my opinions. Um, I've walked for other people or I hear and see people asking for information and assistance on of all places, Facebook groups and such like that. And don't get me wrong, I think social media is in a wonderful place, but unless it is a... Um, very specific group. Um, don't go to Facebook for thoughts on habitat and such or, or seed advice or, oh, I won't even get started. But because um, that would just get me sidetracked. But we're going to talk about a hypothetical situation. And one of the first things, so we've, we've talked about security because above all else, that is the need or the greatest thing that you need to consider when looking at the property. You need to provide that. Now, the, the next question, and everybody... Um, you, every consultant out there, everybody that you see talk about it, every landowner eventually asks the question, you know, what is the biggest need in the area? Is it food? Is it water? Or is it cover? Is it bedding? Um, those are the three main things. And which is of the greatest need in your area? You want to provide the deer the greatest lacking, you know, the greatest thing lacking in the area, the thing that's going to make them attracted to your property. Water is kind of the easy one. Um, I'm going to be honest with you. If you're in an area where there's not a lot of water, it just is a very limited commodity. Going to the extent of putting in a watering hole 
Um, I've had guys, they will literally dig a shallow well themselves, run a hose to it, and self-regulate a 100-gallon tank or something that they submerge in the ground, and they hardly have to do anything. Um, I've had other guys that they just haul water to it. Um, I've had guys dig backhoe, you know, run a backhoe for a day and dig an actual uh, pond, um, whatever it is. And sometimes you have to let the land tell you where to place this, especially if you're going to the extent of actually digging a pond. Um, you may have to choose the lowest area or where the highest water table is. And uh, sometimes that I, I've had people, you know, they come out and have somebody do boring samples. It might cost you five to fifteen hundred bucks but you by the time they, they do these boring samples of the soil knowing where the water table is um, it is is sometimes a valuable resource to where you don't waste money a lot of money putting in a pond um, if you're like me that's not an option you would never have the money to do that unless you win the lottery so we're talking watering holes um, i'm of the preference where if i'm going to go to the extent of putting in a watering hole whether it be one that i dig and then, you know, line with like bentonite or something like that that they recommend you can put on the bottom or those pond liners. Uh, I'm going to want it to be of a, uh, as big as I can make it. Um, if you're doing a, a tank canister, I think 50 gallons minimum. Um, a lot of the trusted friends of mine that have had more experience with, with actually implementing watering holes. I've never had to because water's never been a limited source on any of my properties. However, I'm thinking about installing one more or less for a communication hub and a reason for a deer to swing by a certain location on the new 22. Uh, I think it would provide a area to where my pond, except for the washed out area to the south, in order for a deer to drink from it, they really got to make themselves vulnerable by because the pond is lower than the bank. They've got to dip down in there. And I just, I'm thinking, you know, the mentality of a big buck, they like to be able to have visibility around them, especially in a vulnerable time frame when they're drinking. I would love to put in a, in a water source in an area near a bedding area with a food. I'm thinking that clover plot might be a really good spot for one, but I haven't quite decided, but I'm probably going to go at least 50 gallons. hundred would be preferable or bigger. Um, obviously money may play a factor in that, but I, I do think, you know, if you're not getting to at least 50 gallons, you're wasting time and effort and a lot of effort and blood and sweat equity possibly into it. Um, but that's usually not an issue. Usually there is water either on the property or very close to the property to where, you know, I tell the clients, if that's something you want to do, I think it's great. We can talk about where to put it, maybe put it in the plan, but it's not necessarily a high up on the to-do list of items because it's more of a cherry in the habitat uh, plan. And you can kind of use it like I'm going to do at the new 22 and just giving it another reason, giving deer another reason to go to that location. And it also might be a more of a convenient location of water. Um, located between known bedding areas and food is obviously one of the best areas to put that. It's a lot like putting in some scrapes. Um, you know, people that'll do those vine scrapes or those rope scrapes, and they get deer to really know it as a communication hub. You typically are going to locate those in areas that you want deer to slow down or you want to steer. You know, maybe they work this edge, but you want them to just kind of slow down or suck them into the tree line a little bit farther, into the woods a little bit more, or even out, depending on how comfortable they feel. So you're putting those scrapes in certain locations, and you can do the same thing with a watering hole. And I would say, to an extent, it's more of a natural type thing, you know, a rope hanging from a tree. I, I know there's a debate and everything, but uh, I just, I think I, I'm, I'm more of a preference of watering holes. I love 
mock scrapes. I love getting scrapes started, but I think too many people think they have to go in there and apply scent to it and all that things. I have great luck with picking a great scrape scraping location for a mock scrape is picking a good scraping or an overhead licking branch. If it's got a good overhead licking branch and I rough the ground up in the ground on the ground half the time, at least I don't have to do anything more than that. Every now and then I'll pee in it and such. I don't do that during the season. I'm talking about scrapes that I'm trying to just gently get going. I might, while I'm back there in July checking cameras or August, you know, prepping some food plots or whatever, I might get one and I might, you know, do my business in it and not come back until September um, and just scrape it open again. Just, just to get them familiar with that location and stuff. And uh, I think watering holes can be a good thing, but that's typically, like I said, not the greatest need in an area. It really usually comes down to food or cover. And I don't think it would be, given that I'm from northern Indiana, we have a lot of agricultural fields around, food is typically not going to be the commodity that's needed the most. Excuse me, sorry, I need a drink, dry dry throat. But food is typically not something that I look at a property and say, yeah, that's that's a great need. If we provide food, we're going to be sucking the deer in. It just, uh, typically there's row crops around. Now, if you want to talk about food at certain times of the year, there are agricultural rich areas that they really become void of food post-harvest time. But the rest of the year, there's plenty of food everywhere. Um, in my area, you know, once spring greenups in full throttle, there, there's just there's not really a true lack of food until after post harvest. Um, there's either alfalfa or there's soybeans or there's corn or there's any number of variety. And then that's 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 just the stuff that's planted. Then there's tons of stuff like ragweed and goldenrod and pokeweed and grasses and clovers and woody brows and just anything and everything in the deer woods it's just in a time of abundance and it's not something that you have to worry about but most of the time i would say at least six to eight times out of ten the biggest most glaring issue that is needed in the area and on the property is cover and typically one step further bedding cover it is just a commodity that I think the food, the sexiness of food plots and the ease of which food plots come and you have a visual, you know, a lot of people love to hunt them. They're, they're just, they're, they're, they're attractive to the eye. You can set up cameras on them easy. You can get a lot of deer pictures at night, at least, um, in them, using them just cause of the food source there. It's just, it's, it's kind of like, uh, extremely light and fast arrows and i'm not going to get into that debate either we can save that for some other time but like the sexiness of speed i think has really convoluted or or muddied up the thought process in archery building i think food plots have done the same thing in the habitat industry i think a lot of people are just they that's what they that's where they go oh i want to do stuff for the deer i want to 
you know, have a habitat. I want to create a better habitat, better property for them. So where do you think I should put the food and, and what food plot do you think I should plant? And they don't even begin to think or, or talk about creating a true habitat. You know, it's much bigger than what the deer will eat or where they'll eat. Because, I mean, if, if deer needed food plots, there wouldn't be deer up in the UP of Michigan in the high reaches of Minnesota and the boundary waters. Um, cause there, there ain't much crops up there and there's not many food plotters. And typically if there are, man, they, they are just loaded with deer loaded to the degree that they are loaded up there. There's just not a high deer density up there, but we are going to delve into creating this plan kind of, if you will, on a property that we are going to envision that would fit the typical client and I think parts of it, if not all of it, will be something you can relate to if you are a landowner and you're thinking about attacking a plan. And uh, just a little bit of a teaser. Uh, this is just a very small portion. I'm not going to go into great detail. I'm not going to share images. I mean, you can kind of sketch this out if you want. But I am actually designing and putting together a, uh, I'm calling it the Small Acre Attack Plan. And I'm hoping to release it this fall. That way people can purchase it and uh, receive it and watch it and read it and look through it and digest it heading into the off season and really begin to tackle your habitat plans. The, the one thing that I personally have not liked in the direction that uh, consulting to an extent has went is I think we're missing a large populace of of hunters out there, guys like guys and gals that are typically the ones that are following my pages and other pages and websites and podcasts, a lot of you have the motivation. The motivation is not the issue. You have the motivation to provide for the deer. You are consuming anything and everything that is free out there and anything that is and everything that's out there that is affordable. You're a real world person like me and I'm not talking real world wildlife products. I'm talking about just real world person. Um, you don't have thousands of dollars for a consult. Maybe even doing a $500 consult with boots on the ground. You you just see that that's a lot of money that I could put elsewhere. And you don't necessarily need somebody to come in from start to finish and connect all the dots for you, even possibly do it for you. You're willing to do it for yourself. You're willing to get dirty. You just need confirmation of direction and confirmation that you're heading the right way, that this is the right path, and that, you know what, anything within reason can be corrected and you shouldn't have fear. You can do this. You can tackle that. And changing your mentality from doubting to, I got this. I'm going to go through with this. You just need examples and somebody who has been there, done that, been in your shoes, is a real person and understands that your hard-earned money just may not be best suited to pay hundreds and thousands of dollars to somebody to come in and basically talk to you like, you know nothing, you know. You're I, I, the the attack plan is going to be geared for those of you out there that you understand the nece the necessity of Forbes and cover and browse and deer don't eat just food plots and 
you know, you understand that oaks only provide a very small window of food and you get all that. You know, you listen to all the podcasts. You, you know who guys like Jeff Sturgis and Jake Ellinger and Don Higgins, you know who those guys are. You know who Craig Harper is. You, you know who uh, uh, Bronson Strickland is. Like, I say those names and you know who those people are. Um, so the, the, the small acre attack plan is going to be kind of like this habitat, making a habitat plan series, but laid out in a much more in-depth process. There's going to be videos, there's going to be handouts, there's going to be diagrams that you can use to follow along. And guys, I'm going to try to keep it extremely affordable. It's going to be the first time I'm going to produce a product. And around June or July, if I have enough done, I am looking for about five to 10 individuals that would be interested in receiving the rough mock or demo or whatever it is. It could be as late as August when I get this done. It all depends because we're moving and everything. But I'd like to be able to run this by anybody. So, hey, you know what? I figured what better audience than the podcast. I will take five podcast people that email me and say I would love to get the chance to um, possibly be somebody who receives the demo. Just title your email, I don't know, uh, attack plan demo person or something like that. Just let it be known that you'd like me to consider you to uh, review the attack plan, share your thoughts back to me, and uh, I'm going to give you a, a price point, and if you think it's worth that, if you don't, if you think I'm charging too much, too little, just about right, you view the content as worthwhile and all these things, but uh, again, I don't. I want it to be something that is generic and anybody can absorb and take because when you pay a, con a consultant, a lot of the times you're paying for their experience and you're paying for the pinpoint precision on your property. And I just don't feel like there's a lot of clients out there that that is necessarily something they necessarily need. And they don't need to pay for my experience. They don't need to pay for my speaking directly to their property. They just need to know that they're on the right path. They're on the right process. These are some things to look for. These are some things, if you're designing your bedding area, to keep in mind. These are some things to keep in mind when creating those corridors in between bedding and food and how much food is too much food, in my opinion, and how much should your food be subdivided and locationary things. And we're going to – there's a lot of situational directions that those conversations will go, and at times it may seem like they're a little open-ended, but – Hey, that's what it is. So back on track. Sorry, I got off track. But if you if, if that is something you're interested in, just shoot me an email at smallacrehunting at gmail.com and just let me know. And I won't be able to take everybody, obviously, but uh, I will I will I will pick five diverse areas. So give me your location where where you are. And if you're predominantly in big woods, agricultural, just so I can get a diverse mix of uh, hunter, the hunting populace out there that listen to the podcast. So but let's delve into what's what we're going to focus on in this in the podcast version of this habitat plan, making a habitat plan. Let's picture a property, if you will. It's going to be 25 acres, so very simple number, 25 acres. It's very realistic. Um, oftentimes, many of you, that's probably what you have and my clients typically have, anywhere from 10 to 40, it seems to be the groove. So 25-acre property, it is a square and I actually have a hypothetical map up right now. And if you 
get chosen for the attack plan or it's something that you buy in the future, I'm probably going to use this in detail. But let's say, so you picture a 25-acre chunk of ground from the south side. We'll just describe the borders. Along the southern border is your roadway. The whole southern border is a road. Um, picture a public roadway. It's not a high traffic. It's not a highway. It's more like a county road. Um, gets a decent amount of traffic, but nothing crazy busy. So um, those medium to light use roads, for those of you who live in the areas where poaching is an issue, you know those are the roadways to be concerned. So we're going to keep that in mind that that is something that is possibly an issue in this area. A little description, if you cross that road and you continue to head south, you've got, you know, five to ten acre parcels and a few scattered smaller farms of 20 to 40 acres. The hunting pressure is hit or miss. It uh, seems that some people hunt a lot some years and then not. And then if you keep going even a little bit farther south, like a quarter of a mile or so, it begins to trickle into city limits. Uh, switches from county roads to to actually named roads and, and houses and, you know, less than an acre lots. So it really kind of transitions from county to city um, fairly quickly. So then on the, so that was the south. On the east side is a large farm. Picture a 150-acre farm. It's primarily row crop. Uh, it's got a home on it, of course, family farm. Not a lot of woodlots, but there are some. You know, those places that have 5 to 10 acres at most in size, and they've got a few fence rows or thick fence rows with trees, a um, few ditch lines that have some shrubs and bushes and such, but uh, no large wooded areas. The family hunts this area, and they hunt it quite a lot and pretty hard despite not having a ton of cover present. On the west side is predominantly a string of residential homes on three to five acres in area. Uh, only a couple every now and then seem to hunt the back of their two to three acres that is behind their house and their yard. And typically it's just in gun season. The north side of your property is split in half. So the east half of your northern border is a mature wooded timber chunk, um, closed canopy mature timber, of acreage hunted hard and driven, so deer drives, each firearm opening weekend. Um, seems like a deer camp type situation where there's multiple hunters in camp, and it's a known brown is down. Um, they're respectful. They don't trespass. They don't come onto your property without permission, but, you know, they're just, that's their mentality. I'm just painting a typical... Midwest situation here. The other half of the northern border, the west half, is almost exactly the same makeup. It's mature timber throughout, but it does have a half to three-quarters acre size pond. And this pond is kind of like an egg shape, almost circular, but not quite. And it has scrub cover on its northern side due to the light allowed in from the pond. There's no canopy there, so the he does have some cover, you know, trickled, you know, anywhere from 20 to 60 yards deep as it trickles out as the canopy takes over again on the northern side of the pond. But that light does allow stuff to grow there. He seems a little bit more patient um, as far as what he 
kills. Doesn't hunt a lot, but he seems to luck into or kill a halfway decent buck every so many years. And you've got you you have a a, a good relationship with him. You're not close. You don't know everything, but um, again, fairly decent relationship. Um, and kind of your 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 typical. Um, hunter in the Midwest, another mindset, not a big trophy hunter. So you don't have any trophy hunters around you. Um, but you got, you got some hunters, you got hunting pressure, you got a city nearby, you got a trust, you got a a road that you have to worry about poaching on. It's a, just a very typical Midwest property as far as the makeup around it. Let's delve into what the property is actually made up of. So you have predominantly about 20 acres. So if you take this square along the whole southern edge of your property is that road. You have a field for the whole southern part of your property. Uh, About 80, now I would say about 85% of the property though is pure mature timber. But there's a field between the road and this mature timber complete open field east to west um, with just a slight bend where the woods a slight bend deeper towards the woods on the west side just slight just a subtle bend it's not a straight line hard edge of the woods but it's kind of it just makes a little subtle jog Um, you have a little bit of topography but most people would argue that it's a fairly flat piece of property you don't have any ridges or valleys um, the back northwest corner of your woods is slightly higher, and it kind of tapers down into the field, which is pretty flat. And uh, topography is not going to be your friend when it comes to poachers from the roadway. So, and in your mature timber, oaks are pretty plentiful. Um, you can tell that it's it, it's been logged in the past to the point a long, long time ago, and they seem to protect a lot of the oak trees at that time and walnut trees, the high dollar or the timber trees that a lot of people think. You don't have um, any real medium growth trees because, one, the canopy has choked them out, and, two, the loggers really seem to take care of them in the past. But you do have a decent amount of maples that have somehow... Uh, lived a little bit young maples to mature maples but you are not hurting for white oaks you have a lot of white oaks you've got i would say out of all your oaks two-thirds of them are white the remaining thirds red um you got a few walnuts in there and you got some cherry trees and that's about it everything i mean it's all mature so, yeah, you probably got some sycamores and some other stuff, but, you know, it's predominantly. Now, you do have, on the northern edge of your property, there's a cluster of maybe an acre worth, maybe an acre and a half, two acres at most, of, of evergreen trees. It's it's predominantly white pine back in there, um, but you do have a pocket of, of, of evergreen trees back there. So that's your property. That's a fairly typical property. It's a property that a lot of people will call me in on. The uh, Believe it or not, one of the other uh, typical property types that may be in the habit attack plan we can delve into is uh, fallow fields or overgrown areas or even people that just buy a vacant field. I mean, that's almost more of a daunting task, but this is more likely what I'm called out to. It's a mixture of both, but predominantly mature timber. 
So where do we start? Um, with the amount of pressure of hunting and everything, uh, water, we already know is not an issue. We don't have water on our property. The nearest water is that pond. And let's say that, you know, there's ditches, there's, there's water ditches and such over on the farm to the east I disclosed. So true necessity to water isn't really an issue, but we're going to incorporate water into our plan. We just may not do it right away. But cover. The property is void of it. It's mature timber. Sure, you have deer bedding on it only because it's an area that no humans are at and they they're going to but you don't count or bank on deer being there during the day or you shouldn't because it's closed canopy no understory unless a tree dies or gets hit by lightning it's just it's pretty bare you know it's one of those park-like forests where you could drive a dodge dakota through it ford ranger Um, easily a four-wheeler i mean you can go flying through these woods uh, it's just not, it is the typical woods that people think look great and they just, they love the way it looks. But if you're a deer, let's remember deer live in the area, basically between your armpits and your feet. If your habitat is not producing things in that zone, it's not really doing a good job and it's not really conducive to deer. So we've got to transition this property to actually be offering stuff inside that zone and not just food. As you already know, we have that five-acre, give or take, five-acre chunk field along the southern edge. It's presently in alfalfa. Let's Let's just say that. It's in alfalfa. So... We have the area of food there. And alfalfa will provide us some food, and we've got some long-term things. But one of the first and and, and most pivotal steps is, you know, I don't want to start trying to carve food plots out of a mature timber. So we're going to have a hard conversation. And for some, this is the do or die of a habitat plan. How much do you love your timber? How much do you desire big buck activity to create a whitetail mecca? Because I and I and I say big buck, but just remember what I've been saying. It's a mature deer, mature bucks. There's not a hunter out there that has ever hired me for a consult that says, I don't care what I kill. I just want to kill anything. If that's already their mindset, they typically don't care enough to even reach out. And I don't think most of you you would fall into that category or you wouldn't be listening to this podcast. So do you love the timber? Do you care about producing timber value more or hunting value more? And to what degree? How willing are you to cut some trees? Because you are going to have to. So the first step, the first step that I almost always recommend is tell people, hey, Get in touch with a forester. Have them come out and discuss with you how many trees are loggable. Typically, in areas, there's going to be a known minimum size that loggers will take. 
And be honest with the forester. You want to know a, a rough figure after you walk and such. If you aggressively harvest every single tree, give or take, what does that mean? How many does that mean you are taking out? And then tell them, let's do a little bit more conservative. You know, add two inches in diameter to those trees. You know, maybe the minimum diam- diameter is X. Give, you know, let's, let's, let's enlarge that by two more inches. It would protect a few more trees. What am I looking at? And let them know, you know, you're designing this for deer. You want deer. And right now, there is no cover, no bedding. Uh, real decent cover and bedding. You do have some thermal cover because of that the the pine area up there in the northwest kind of corner, but that's the only t- kind you got really. So the first step in a mature timber like this is you got to get you got to harvest. Um, my personal opinion is I am going to in a situation like this I'm going to pick a couple areas that I think or I know from the area. Actually, let's go into this and say we don't know the known deer traffic area, but we're assuming deer are coming and going on the eastern side from that that farm. That's kind of their destination food, or even your alfalfa field to the south. We're going to assume that most daytime activity doesn't come to and from the north unless it's them escaping that east property or people bumping deer from the west. You know, backyard slivers like that and everything, that that screams to me small little sanctuaries. Yeah, there's humans there, but, you know, the majority of people, and you'll get to know the majority of people, that two-acre backyard, they don't go back there a lot. You know, that tree line is kind of as far as they go, and then they've got two acres of woods that they don't really touch. And deer talk up in those. So that west side of, of this property intrigues me in the sense that there's going to be a, a, a decent pockets of unhunted stuff. And, you know, I think I think traffic for the most part, overall, there's going to be a few places that they seem to predominate or predominate to dominate. Uh, you know, I would picture that southern and northern edge of that evergreen, the the up in the northwest corner of my property, the pines kind of that edge that those create that's really the only edge on this property except for the field edge you know deer like the edge a little bit of a, of a breakup of cover style uh, maybe the stem count changes in there maybe you have a few more trees a few more pines um, even though they're just vertical blockade vertical uh, site blocking it still changes the types of trees the soil type's going to change some it's just an edge so most of the traffic is going to be more east-west. So I'm initially thinking, I'm starting to go through, okay, I'm thinking, I like why those pines are already up there. I'm probably going to end up trying to put a bedding area up here on the southern side of those pines that are kind of tucked up, not all the way west to be in the very northwest corner. There's a chunk of mature timber, and then they're kind of right there in that northwest corner, but not quite. They're a little east of the corner. So directly south of there, I'm thinking that's a great spot for bedding. It's it's an extreme corner of my property. It adds a ton of depth. It's going to incorporate 
thermal cover into it, which is a bedding option that I don't have in the general area for the most part, and I don't have anywhere on my property. And I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna timber that area really hard and aggressive. I wanna go from a closed canopy to an entirely open canopy. Every single loggable tree in whatever designated amount of area I choose. And that may be dictated by the amount of high dollar trees that are back there. You might shoot west farther than you planned originally, but the logger finds a lot of really good trees. So you're going to extend that bedding area and hook it around those pines kind of west and then slightly north. But that's an area that screams, it's the farthest. So depth of cover or the depth of your property is created by stacking, you know, in a row in a continuous a succession of habitat types or breakups or components is stacking those kind of one on top of another and and making depth to your property. It can make a 20-acre property feel much bigger. If, you know, you enter it down here and you've got some food and then you can break off and you've got a bedding option you got a transitional area through some micro plots this direction, and, and those micro plots are encircled by blockading of bushes. But then down here on your food plots, you've got miscanthus giganus breakings. You've got a variety of fruit trees down here. When you transition up there, you've got some chestnuts that you plant around those micro plots. And then you've got bedding area off to the north of that. It transitions into cover on the west side of it, but a different type, more of a hinge cut type setting. It's just we're going to stack ideas to create that depth of a property. I think one of the things that a lot of people do and on smaller type properties this is a much bigger issue. You know, I think if you have 100 acres or more an option seriously is plop a 5 to 10 acre food plot right smack dab in the middle of the property and Build your property depth-wise out from there all the way around and just get deer to, to be going inward to the destination food. Whereas in on a small property, you don't have that luxury of that depth. If you put a food plot that big to be able to be the destination food source, you don't have enough area around it to do that. And... While we may at times incorporate in this property is going to have about three acres of food on the, on the southern part of it, I haven't yet decided, even as I speak, I'm, well, I mean, I have. It's going to be three acres of food, but I'm going to divide it up with some site blocking and get it to where that's kind of an area. You know, by the time we're done, you may have a three-acre food area, but you, you're not offering enough food to where it's your destination. You're never going to override the agricultural fields to the east. And we're going to use a few transitional food sources, some micro plots, no bigger than probably a half acre, inward off that tree line that we're going to aggressively um, do some TSI work in there to create a feathered edge effect to get a lot of understory growth that then breaks off into a little bit more closed canopy and then up into the bedding options, and we're going to create a multitude of different bedding options up here on the northern third of our property. Apologies for that. I thought I shut my phone off. But we are going to attempt to create a bedding option in a multitude of different ways. We are going to create 
hinge cut predominantly bedding areas, open bedding areas, and that was when I was saying, you know, aggressively timbering hard near those thermal covers, you're going to create a lot of stem count explosion of the dormant seeds in that ground up there. And that's one bedding option. And then in another spot, you might go in and you're going to, you're going to hint, you're going to, uh, sorry, you're going to aggressively log in that area, but then you're also going to go in and do hack and squirt. Anything that's left by the logger that's of decent size or maybe isn't oak, um, unless you have a ton of young oaks too, but anything that wasn't quite big enough for logging and isn't like a veneer or 10 years, 15 years from now, the logger points it out and says that tree's going to be worth some serious money in the future. You know, have them mark a couple trees like that. Yeah, if you want to protect them, protect them. One or, you know, a few trees here and there like that that you want to save for timber value isn't going to ruin your habitat plan. A ton of them will. So up there, I'm going to get all the loggable trees out. Then I'm going to go back in and kill a lot of the other trees. I'm either going to cut them down for firewood and haul those puppies out. Um, You can even tell the logger to haul those out if you want. Leave treetops. It's great cover. Um, Deer, rabbits, everybody will love you. Coyotes will even love you because it's going to up the small game. It's just a factor of what happens. But that area in there is going to be um, just a different type of bedding option because you're going to be doing that. Now, wherever we choose to put a second bedding option, we're going to go in there, we're going to log it, and then we're going we're gonna to do hinge cutting in this one. So we're going to have more horizontal cover in there. We're going to be able to scatter some more beds and corridors and cut paths through here. But it's, it's going to feel like a different bedding option. And it's going to happen much quicker than the one by the thermal cover, by the pines. Because in there, we haven't hinged any trees. We've killed a lot of the vertical ones. We've logged out a lot of the big, huge ones. And we're going to wait and see what Mother Nature has in store that's going to pop from the ground. And that's where you may have to keep track of it. If you have a lot of invasives that start coming in, you can make the call. Do you eradicate them or do you not? Um... I, I think if you have the means and you have bush honeysuckle pop-up, get rid of it. Plant other stuff in there then. But I would sit back and wait a year and go in there and see what 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 grew in here. And some 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 areas, you know, some soil types, some locations, you might have to wait two years to see what's happening. Uh, if you can be patient, be patient. I think you might be surprised. But we're going to stack bedding up there and... Because of access, we'd only have access off the southern side. Not everybody has, you know, great access points. So we're gonna we're gonna pretend in this hypothetical situation, we don't have access off any. So our access is gonna be the very southeast corner, the very southwest corner, heading north. We're not going to access this property from any other direction. We're not gonna access from the middle. We're not gonna do anything, and we are gonna hunt it smart. So easterly winds, we're gonna hunt on the west side of stuff. Westerly winds, we're going to hunt on the east side of stuff. And we're going to have very limited stand options that actually make us intrude upon the center of the property. We're going to have them because they could be dynamite sets for us. But the way we're going to do the plot systems and things of that nature, which we're going to talk about the plot diagram layout, because overhauling the the woods is going to be the most labor-intrusive type thing. But it's going to reap the most benefits. But there is a lot we can do to the foods to start planning our future. 
So we've talked about the woods a lot. We're going to put a betting option up in the northwest corner. We're going to put a betting option in the northeast corner as well. I kind of t- we can throw that hinge cut area over there. Um, I I think then you're going to have predominantly the main food down in the southern. We're going to carve it out of those fields down there. But then up into the woods, we're going to do some clearing. We're going to do some logging. We're going to do some clearing. And then we're either going to let stuff grow up. We're going to we're going to clear it, doze it, get stuff growing in there. We're not going to turn the entire area into food plot. We're going to let stuff grow up. We're going to kind of have that fallow field effect in there after a few years. We're going to have some some smaller food plots leading up into the property. We have southern exposure going up. So the one thing about a property is if you have really good southern exposure like this, we've already spoken. I need a drink. We've already spoken that we have a road to our south. We have a five-acre elongated rectangle along the southern fifth of our property. That's just open field. So we have great light that can flood into that woodline edge, which means we can introduce some teardrop, uh, inverted teardrop, or I guess it wouldn't be inverted, but teardrops where they're fat down by the field and they taper off into the woods. And we can use those fingers to encourage movement up to our bedding areas. And in those, we can make feathered edges by letting things grow up and putting micro food plots up into them. These are areas that could be dynamite locations in certain times of the year where deer and mature bucks are coming down to come to that food plot. It's almost like a staging area, a micro plot, a kill plot. It's all these different names that people have for them. But these are areas that deer are going to filter to a little bit before dark. They're going to they're gonna hit these in plenty of time for you to get a shot because they're smaller, they feel safer, they're closer to cover. Again, let's remember in all this, I don't want a deer more than two leaps away from cover that they can hide in. And in a property like this, there may be some areas you can incorporate and actually use mature timber flats, you know, three to five acre areas where nothing really grows underneath them and use them to encourage and construct movement in a way that most people don't think about. Because outside of when oaks are dropping in those areas, unless you do an amazing job and the deer don't feel unsafe moving through those areas, those do kind of create a dead zone type area to where you can use those to access. You're not going to be jumping bedded deer in them. Um, You can hunt the edges of them, use them to access to an edge. You know, I'm going to keep this area dead in the understory, whether that's by chemical intrusion or you know, keep just keeping things from growing and allowing the mature trees to stay, you're decreasing the amount of things between the hoof and the armpit or your feet and your armpit for the deer in that area. So the likelihood of them utilizing that area is lower. So it's just another thing to keep in mind. Um, I I don't know if I want to go any deeper in this. I could, I could keep talking and going and, and illustrating points, but these are just a few things that, I think any good habitat consultant and anybody that you hire, these these are the millions of things flying through their head that they're trying to sculpt out in their mind for your property specifically. 
and keep that in mind. Um, there are so many possible options and outcomes for a property. And I'm of the firm belief there's not one perfect and only way to do a property. I know guys that, you know, they're, they're firm believers in they will never have a food plot over half an acre. Okay. And they're very successful. There's other guys, they love plowing up a field and they, they, they love putting in tons of food. That's great. They got good cover. It don't matter. We can do that. So, you know, if this is a situation where you have a consultant, you know, express what your direction kind of is, but understand that they're truly trying to envision what the best property is and you hired them. So they're, they're going to sculpt a property in line with how they think and how they prefer to hunt. That's why one of the questions that I ask when I'm off when I'm asking people is I gear towards all my properties are geared towards the bow hunting mentality. You know, I got to get close to these deer. I can't afford to set up and design things to be 60, 70, 80 yards away from me. You know, my stand locations and my situation, everything I do at a property is geared towards the bow hunting side of things. It opens up a world. It's a world of difference if you tell me, hey, I gun hunt. I gun hunt a lot, and I don't mind. I'm I'm just as tickled dropping a buck with a gun as I am a bow. Man, I tell you what. Whew. I love bow hunting. It's, it's in my blood. I can't erase it. Um, but there are times where I'm just like, Lord, if I was just a gun hunter, oh, my gosh, I can't imagine the damage I can do to the mature buck population. So just let them know that. It does change things. It sculpts things different. So just know, you know, a lot of what I've discussed is all dictating towards creating depth and having deer moving and getting in close. Um, we haven't even talked about stand locations, but I'm probably going to touch on that a little bit. Um, but the next uh, part four is going to touch on kind of sculpting that food and some ideas food-wise that I would do in this situation, just very briefly. Um, I probably went more in-depth in this uh, podcast than I even meant to, and we're almost 50 minutes in. But hopefully, you know, we talked about it a lot of different things, and hopefully it it, it cracked open my mind a little bit, and it uh, gave you a lot of things to consider, a lot of things to think about. Um, if you're liking what you're hearing, if you're liking this habitat plan type thing, you know, please let me know. Uh, say it in the comments, share the podcast, uh, email me your thoughts. If you're hating this stuff, uh, let me know that too. Constructive criticism never hurt anybody, um, at least not anybody that wants to be better. So uh, again, thank you for everything. I know many of you guys have been asking when's the next podcast going to drop. Uh, hopefully I will record. I'm actually going to try to record part four right now as well. Um, we'll talk about food and we'll talk about stand locations, stand thought directions. And I think we'll have this uh, series of podcasts wrapped up and that should take us into after the move. And hopefully I'll have my studio set back up to some degree and we can start recording uh, various other podcasts and such. So I think that's all I got for this episode of the Smaller Hunting Podcast, part three of making a habitat plan. Thank you to each and every one of you that make this possible. I'd love to be able to say that, actually, I don't. I'm I, oh, sorry. I, I wanted to make, I was going to make a joke, and now this sounds terrible. But uh, anyways, 
thank you all for uh, tuning in, making this podcast possible. This podcast isn't sponsored. It's done for you, and maybe someday I'll set up a Patreon page, and if you like what you have to hear, you can always support it. But I promise you the one thing that I will never do is sell this podcast to sponsors and shove ads down your throat. Um, you know, I'm getting really, really downtrodden listening to podcasts, and I have to sit through five to ten minutes of just advertisements and such. And I think it kind of steers the conversation and the direction of a podcast, you know, if you don't necessarily like the products or the, or the businesses. Um, so know that I'm not going to do that. Hey, I, I'm not... There may be some better financial gain in that, but it's just not what I am. I'm real world. I know a lot of you out there use a variety of different products, um, buy from a variety of different businesses, and I want you to just be able to come here, listen to somebody talking deer hunting, and not uh, pushing product or being told to share something um, because they need to support their sponsors. So. That's all I got for you guys. Tune in next time on part four when we discuss a little bit of food manipulation and some of the thought processes there when I start talking food plots and food sources in general. Not just food plots provide food. God bless and good luck out there. As I already said before, thank you for listening to this episode of the Smaller Hunting Podcast. Hopefully wherever you find yourself, private, public, big land, small land, New hunter or old hunter, there's something that you've learned. For ultimately, that's all I care about. If you have any topic discussion ideas for the Small Acre Hunting Podcast, be sure to email me at smallacrehunting at gmail.com. Be sure to like and subscribe to all the videos on YouTube. Like and follow the Facebook page. Check out the website from time to time. And as always, stay tuned for the next episode of the Small Acre Hunting Podcast. God bless and good luck out there.